Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Henrietta Simmons Pigram has really fond memories of her childhood in Orange Mound, a neighborhood right in the core of Memphis, Tennessee. We played marbles. <laughs> we climbed trees. It was a special place, one of the first all-black neighborhoods in the South, and it still is over 90% black. Sitting in her wood-paneled den, Henrietta took us back to the Orange Mound of her youth, back in the 1940s. At that time, I was a teenager. Henrietta hung out at the Orange Mound pool. She went to the old Melrose High School, and she saw big-name performers at the W.C. Handy Theater, a place with plush seats and an orchestra pit. It was really nice. She remembers this one show in particular. It was blues musician Roy Milton performing. Her friend had actually set her up on a date with a coworker, So she put on a green dress, red shoes, gold accessories. I got dressed and I went down to my girlfriend's house. And that's how I met my husband. Really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I really hated when they told the hand of theater down. Orange Mound is really different now. There's a a lot of vacant lots that didn't used to be there. On most blocks, there are boarded-up houses and abandoned buildings, including the W.C. Handy Theater. It closed in the 1950s and then fell apart slowly until it was torn down in 2012. It gave the children in the neighborhood something that they could be proud of. The theater used to be a brightly colored building with a glowing marquee. Really big-name performers came to play there, like Roy Milton, but also B.B. King and Duke Ellington. Now, it's a concrete ruin, but painted orange for Orange Mound. There are these blocks outlining the old theater with things like Community Pride and Hashtag The Mound painted on them in white letters. There's also a lot of graffiti. The word remnant comes to mind. My producer, Bird, wandered around the foundation with a young community organizer, Brittany Thornton. You see litter, trash. Brittany climbed up on one of the orange blocks. I feel tension in this space, and I um, feel more of the sadness of what Orange Mound has become. 
There's no single reason that this part of Memphis has fallen apart. A lot of Black professionals moved out as Memphis desegregated. There were problems with drugs, and the Great Recession hit Orange Mound especially hard. But the city of Memphis made one very specific policy decision that made things worse in Orange Mound and neighborhoods like it. A decision that the city now acknowledges was a big mistake. A decision that led to less money spent on the core of the city, but heavy spending in the suburbs. It created a city that looks like this. This house has um, 10 acres, maybe 15. But also like this. You start seeing blighted apartment complex. They have their own small lake. You see a car wash that need to be remodeled or shut down. And they have a bridge going over their pond as well. Hello and welcome to The Impact, a show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm your host, Sarah Cliff, and this season we are focusing on the most interesting policy experiments all across the country. A lot of our episodes are about policy experiments showing promising results. But today, we are looking at a policy experiment that failed. For decades, Memphis gobbled up its surrounding suburbs, bringing them into the city limits. The city thought geographic growth would help its bottom line. And it wasn't alone. Cities across the country did the same thing, from Detroit to Dallas to San Diego. But recently, Memphis has started to question the economic logic that drove its sprawl. It's realizing that the real wealth of a city is not in the neighborhoods with the biggest, fanciest houses. Memphis is admitting its policy experiment did not work. So it's starting a new one, one that other cities might also want to consider. Memphis is on a diet. The city is shrinking. Okay. Yes, I I came to Memphis in uh, the summer of 1973 in a beat-up white Volvo station wagon with two children and my wife. This is David Sissel, and he talks like most of the Memphians we met, taking each sentence very slowly. The cicadas were all chirping as we came in that evening, uh, and it was quite a delightful welcoming. David is a retired economist who spent his career studying Memphis, including the city's sprawl, he says that state policy was a key ingredient in Memphis's growth. Tennessee in the past gave very strong annexation powers to the city. Our big key term here, annexation, in Memphis's case, it meant incorporating all these chunks of surrounding land into the city. And as David says, Tennessee law said Memphis could do that pretty liberally. So, for the last several decades, it did. The city leadership clearly wanted the new affluent homes in the eastern portion inside the city. Signs of change in all the city. Starting in the 1950s, courts ordered schools to desegregate. State and local police were unable to control a mob which reacted in bitter violence on learning that nine Negroes had entered the school as students. 
all across the country, school integration was a key factor driving people out of the city and into... The suburbs. What are you looking for? Your warmth, your love, your work, your rest from work, your quiet and the sounds you like, your privacy, your friends. Memphis was no exception. Many, many richer white Memphians moved to the suburbs, too. The right place for us. I have um, a garden behind me. When Patricia Postle moved to Tennessee in the year 2000, her family settled in the suburbs of Memphis. They wanted a quiet place outside the city, close to nature. My producer, Bird, went to visit her in August and got a tour of the trees in her garden. As an artist, I absolutely love my river birch because it's very whimsical and wispy. Patricia is tall and blonde and very put together. Her pink lipstick matches her pink nails. Her yard is just as polished. There's even a row of crepe maple trees with alternating colors, pink and white and pink and white. My property is very beautiful. I really love sitting out here because I don't know if you're picking this up or not, but you can hear the locusts in the trees right now. All the houses and gardens Bird saw in Patricia's neighborhood, a place called South Cordova, were impressive. There were houses with fountains in the front yard, houses with horse farms, a house with a giant platform built into the trees, kind of like a tree castle. When Patricia moved to South Cordova, it was not part of Memphis. But then, on Sunday, July 1st, 2012... So we wake up to this newspaper article, South Cordova's been annexed. And we're going, what the heck? And a few other words that you wouldn't want to say on the radio. Patricia was worried about her property value. And she was frustrated. She felt like she had no say about being annexed. And so we went to go on this walk. And there were a heavy police presence in the neighborhood. And I remember walking down the street and running into one of the neighbors. And I said, what do you think they think we're going to do? Are we going to riot? Oh, wait, no, we're not going to riot because we own our own homes. So we're not going to burn them to the ground because Memphis did this. Memphis did to Patricia's neighborhood what it has been doing to suburban neighborhoods for decades. It absorbed it into the city limits. Between 1960 and 2016, the city more than doubled in size geographically. Memphis annexed the new white suburbs slowly but surely in order to gain the wealth of those suburbs for taxing purposes. It was chugging along using the math that city planners assumed was correct. Rich suburbs generate more tax money, so acquiring rich suburbs is good. Except what none of us really focused on was the huge cost of being so large, so sprawling. I and I think almost all the professionals who worked on urban planning in Memphis all were slightly blind to the issues that were going to face us 20 years later. Around 1990, the Federal Reserve Bank in Memphis looked at the city budget and said, wow, they are spending a lot of money. I wonder where it's all going. So officials at the bank approached our friend David and said, can you look into this? 
I was not a person who went into the study as a believer that urban sprawl was a bad idea. But he started digging up numbers, looking at the cost of things. Things like providing basic utilities, water, sewage, all the roads we had to build. It's interesting to have a study that you do open your own eyes. To understand what the cost of sprawl looks like, let's take a drive through Patricia Postle's neighborhood. So we are backing out of my garage, and we are going to go on tour of uh, South Cordova. Bird and Patricia drove in loops, down and around cul-de-sacs, past mansions on big plots. The houses are pretty spread out, with perfect green lawns and elaborate additions. Like this home is a very large Victorian We're looking at a house with several turrets. But there was this one thing that really stuck out in this manicured suburban picture. People try to take care of their yards around here, but it looks disgusting when you have all this debris laying on the road. Patricia pointed to saggy trash bags and piles of tree branches. Trash collection was supposed to be the next day, but Patricia claims yard waste can sit out for weeks. We ran this by the city, and they confirmed that's true. One of the struggles since we've been annexed is they canceled our private garbage collections. As a result of annexation, the city got to tax Patricia and her neighbors. That was money in. But the city doesn't just get money from the suburbs. The city also has to put money out in services, like garbage services, which are way harder to provide when houses are spread out and have lots and lots of extra trash from gardens. Patricia thinks she is not getting her tax money back in services. She suspects it goes to other Memphis residents. The city of Memphis this year did a summer camp program. This was a program in community centers, It had arts and crafts and field trips and also focused on educational skills like literacy. They came up with that money for this summer, but they can't pay the garbage men to come pick up the garbage in Cordova. Why? What's more important, giving free youth programs or picking up people's garbage? Because if you think about garbage not being picked up, It draws vermin, snakes, rats, sewer rats, roof rats. For almost two hours, Patricia drove Bird around. They passed city-funded schools, libraries, driving all the while on roads the city has to maintain. And then you notice um, the street lights here. Patricia pulled into a neighborhood where a resident had fought for a very specific street light. He got the city to put in these streetlights instead of the ugly, hideous, commercial, scratched-and-dent leftover ones that they put into my neighborhood. Now, I wouldn't say the streetlights on Patricia's street are particularly hideous, but these ones, they're nice. With globes, kind of a gaslight-looking. fight over streetlights tells us something important. It is expensive to provide services for a huge area, especially in a way that pleases very vocal residents who have quite specific tastes. When David Sissel was researching Memphis sprawl, he started to realize 
It made the city clearly less efficient. The cost of getting something done was rising because everything was so spread out. For him, it was an aha moment. The suburbs were not an economic boon to the city. They were kind of an economic disaster. I remember at one meeting when we were introducing the design for the street lamps and they showed they're going to be aluminum, I believe it was, and the folks had up an arm. We want to match what, what it looks like. Wait a minute. <laughs> this is A.C. Warden. He was the mayor of Memphis at the time. So he had to deal with the streetlight complaints coming from the suburbs. I never heard anybody in the city saying, I don't like this old concrete pole. I want some fancy wooden poles. It became just really clear to me that the idea of more revenue by way of annexation just did not pan out. A few years ago, Mayor Wharton put together a task force to study this problem. They did some of the same digging that David Sissel had done. And the more they dug, the more they realized the city was looking for tax revenue in all the wrong places. After the break, the right places to look for wealth and Memphis's new plan to turn the city around. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back to The Impact. Before the break, we told you about Memphis's decision to gobble up its surrounding suburbs and its slow realization that those suburbs weren't actually generating as much money as Memphis had hoped. Mayors, there's so many things on our mind. It's hard to get us in a corner and actually look at bars and graphs and all that kind of stuff. A.C. Warden was elected mayor in 2009. He assembled a task force to study annexation, a group of researchers who looked at all the bars and graphs for him. And then they drew him a map saying, Mayor, it takes one garbage truck to go all the way out here to ride over hell and a half acre to these 23 houses. But in the compact core of the city, 
One garbage truck services thousands of homes. And I said, yeah, how much money are we getting? And they showed me. They showed him that Memphis's core, including some of the poorest parts of the city, was financing new roads, new schools, new infrastructure in the annexed and affluent neighborhoods. Think about that for a second. Rich suburbs complain all the time about having to subsidize poorer neighborhoods. But, at least in Memphis, an area with really poor neighborhoods was subsidizing an area with really rich ones. The poorest neighborhoods were getting the raw deal. The real wealth is not in these areas which we have taken in by annexation. The real essential services are where? Right here in the core city. Forrest Gump could see it. It was so easy. After decades and decades of disinvestment, of money funneling to the suburbs, the core of Memphis is suffering. A lot of it is now blighted. Like Orange Mound, that neighborhood with the old theater that got torn down. We met Brittany Thornton there earlier, at the rubble of the theater. After that, she took Bird for a drive. This is the street that brings back so many memories. Brittany is normally full of energy. She started a nonprofit at 27. She waves to strangers out of her car. It's my favorite thing to do. Hey, how you doing? She organizes 5Ks, even though she doesn't love walking. But sitting in a car across from her childhood home, she's a little more subdued. So this is my home house that I grew up in all the way up until high school. Um, if you want to take a better picture, I can. The house is light cream, tidy, with a perfectly trimmed front lawn. But I want to get a picture of my home house and this next door house. The next door house is in bad shape. The windows are boarded up. There's a tree, like, coming out of the side of it. The front porch is hanging, you know, like, it, it looks like it's ready to fall apart. And so, um, try and living next door to that. And it's not just next door to it. Yeah, right? There's also an empty lot across the street that used to be a church. Next to that, another house, boarded up with the house number spray-painted on it. This is the kind of blight that spreads when there is a decades-long disinvestment in a community. You can imagine me coming from college and coming home and seeing this. This is my house. And then you think, what are the kids supposed to like think about their community? They have to they have to make do with this. They have to find this beautiful. They have to get a source of inspiration from this. Orange Mound used to have cafes where people dance the jitterbug. It used to have an Olympic-sized pool. Brittany showed Bird an old photograph of it. There's a young black man mid-dive with a small crowd looking on. It looks like he's floating in the air. Now, Orange Mound has vacant lots. The grocery recently closed. There's no neighborhood library. No coffee shops where you can sit and stay a while. When Mayor Wharton realized that annexation was playing a role in all this blight, he said, Enough. We are done. Memphis needs to stop eating suburbs. And then, in late 2015, Memphis got a new mayor. So, here we are, halfway through my first term. Jim Strickland. He's speaking at a dinner. And it is clear he wants to continue the work that A.C. Warden started. 
those days of growth by annexation are over. In fact, he's taking things one big step further. After decades and decades of sprawl, we're embracing the right-sizing of our city through de-annexation. De-annexation. Cutting suburban neighborhoods out of the city. In other words, Memphis is going on a diet so it can focus resources on the neighborhoods closer to the center. We will build up, not build out. Our growth will be anchored on the strength of our core and on our neighborhoods. Mayor Strickland talks about plans for addressing blight and repairing streets. There is no more visible sign to citizens that the city cares about you and your neighborhood than a fresh coat of blacktop. Remember that summer camp program that Patricia was so frustrated by? The one she feels is taking money from her trash pickup? We will be launching an initiative this summer. It's actually part of that new shift to investing in core neighborhoods. We've made our goals all about reinvesting in Memphis. The city has a map of all the places they might de-annex. Patricia's neighborhood, South Cordova, is on that map. A final decision will come out next year. And if it goes through, then Patricia gets her wish. Her neighborhood will no longer be part of Memphis. But they want at least four years additional taxes, but they're not maintaining us. And then with that additional language saying, at any other time, we just need money, we can come to you and get it. Patricia doesn't think it'll be an easy transition. And she's not the only one who's concerned. Back in Orange Mound, back in August, Brittany Thornton also had questions. There's lots of development happening in Memphis. Where the development is happening is the question that I have. Because it's not touching Black communities. To me, that's a problem in a city that's predominantly African-American. How you're able to create these wonderful spaces of entertainment, but only white people benefit, it just baffles me. If the message I need to internalize is just wait because it's coming, I can do that. But if you can't tell me, then there is no, you know, time period for this wait. And we're going to have to advocate for the things that we need. Brittany took Bird to see one more spot in Orange Mound, a spot she wants to advocate for. So we're approaching Old Melrose. The old Melrose High School building. It's huge brick with wide windows that have broken and cracked panes. Almost 40 years ago, the city built another school and moved students there. This building has just been sitting, abandoned and decaying ever since. The residents who have, you know, a front row view of the school, like they've watched it for decades be nothing Bird and Brittany wandered around the outside of the building, trying to avoid bits of glass from the broken panes. You see trees (laughs) growing through the window panes from the inside. It might seem depressing, like it is destined to become yet another pile of rubble. But Brittany, she sees possibility in this building. For it to be a place full of like lots of different opportunity, diversified opportunities. So you won't just come here just for school like it has been in the past. You'll come here for entertainment. We've talked about having a museum here, right? I would love for it to be... Um, a new space, like the old W.C. Handy or the Olympic-sized pool that Orange Mound could be really, really proud of, that other neighborhoods would envy. 
Brittany has been working with the city to make that happen. In October, they held a three-day event at the abandoned school. They were trying to convince investors to see the potential that Brittany sees. The trees around the old building were trimmed. The broken windows were filled in with maroon panels. There was local artwork inside the building and lights strung up. Even some alumni of the old school came. Class of 56, 1975. Okay. And there was music from local musicians. The band from the new high school drummed in a bunch of local officials. The sheriff, a councilwoman. Good morning, I'm Jim Strickland. How are y'all doing? And the mayor. It's clear that he wants change for this building and this neighborhood. And I want y'all to know, at city government, we are committed to the future of Orange Mound. But he's pretty vague about how they're actually going to get to that future. So anyone who's got imagination and dedication and can get some resources, hopefully will step forward and be inspired by this building. We called Brittany afterwards to see what she thinks. Are you are you optimistic? Are you just waiting? I mean, that's a big question, right? So I'm definitely op- optimistic. It would be foolish for you to to <laughs> to conjure up the energies of Orange Mound only to disappoint. Restoring one building is obviously not going to make up for decades of disinvestment. But it's a start. Memphis has already cut two suburban neighborhoods out of its city limits. Even more are on the chopping block. The city is really serious about shrinking. It can be hard to admit when something doesn't work. For me, for mayors, mistakes are just difficult to own up to. But in Memphis, you have a city government doing exactly that, declaring we spent decades screwing up and we're going to try and fix it. The people we talked to said that this is pretty unprecedented. They said that when it comes to urban sprawl, most cities still have an unapologetic appetite. But if this new strategy does turn things around in core Memphis, other cities might want to pay attention. They might think it is time for us to go on a diet too. This episode was produced by and co-reported with Bird Pinkerton. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska and our senior producer is Jillian Weinberger. This episode was mixed and scored by Jared Paul. Our theme song is by Jukebox the Ghost. And we had other music from Poddington Bear, Blue Dot Sessions, and of course, a little bit of Roy Milton. Thanks so much to Charles Marone from Strong Towns for turning us onto this story and to Angela Barksdale for generously giving us access to her Facebook Live videos from the Melrose High School event. We also had really helpful conversations with Doug McGowan, John Zena, Arlenia Cole, Catherine Green, Rachel Knox, Erica Horden, Mary Baker, Reed Ewing, and Quincy Morris. Thank you to all of you. Here at Vox, we want to thank Jamila Various and, as always, Allison Rocky. We would love to hear your thoughts on this episode, this season, interesting policy ideas you're seeing in your neck of the woods. Send us an email at impactedvox.com or write us a review wherever you listen. 